0: Welcome to STD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastchrist.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. So we're going to be starting a new series today, and the series is called Live Differently. And if you were here last week and you know that that phrase, live differently, is one of our values. It's one of the things that we aim for as Christians, is we want to live differently because we are called to live like Christ, which is different than the rest of the world. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to live differently, especially within our context here and in our culture. And uh, I was thinking about what I was going to talk about today, and I thought I would just share a little bit about what I learned um, throughout the summer. Because at the end of the last season, right as summer was starting, if I'm going to be totally transparent and honest, I was not in a good place. And what I mean by that is, I just—I was having these really weird physical symptoms. I couldn't—I expe- couldn't tell you why I was experiencing this. And with the doctor, I was like, "Hey, what's going on? Is there something serious happening with me?" And at the same time, I was just stress eating, and I had a short fuse, and I couldn't—and fi- I couldn't figure out for a little while what was happening. And then I realized I was experiencing a high level of stress and anxiety. But it didn't make any sense to me because life was going really, really well. Like there wasn't any problems. There wasn't anything tragic or pressing that was happening. In fact, most of the things in my life were going well at that point. And I couldn't figure out why, why am I so stressed out? Why do I have so much anxiety right now? And I realized it's because I had been running on empty like there was nothing left in my emotional tank. I had just been going, 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 going. I'd been constantly busy. I'd filled up my schedule to where I was running from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And all the things I was running to were all the really good things. But I was just, I was at an unsustainable pace. And so I started to pull back a little bit throughout the summer and started to, started to kind of think about the lifestyle that I was living and all the lifestyle I think most of us are living because busyness is probably not just a, a me problem. I'm guessing it's a you problem as well. I know it is because in the Atlantic, they wrote a couple years ago, it says, uh, the the article said, busyness is the status symbol of our time. So in the past, the way that we showed people that we were valuable, that we are somebody is by what we had. It was having valuable things. But now the way that we show we're valuable is by being the valuable thing. And so busyness is one of the things where it's like, well, I'm busy because I have things that people want from me. And so that must mean that I'm important, that I am somebody. And so busyness becomes a way to show people how important you are. If you rewind to the uh, kind of the turn of the, the century, there was all these predictions about what might happen in the next hundred years. And because we are advancing technologically, a lot of people predicted that we were going to have a shortage of work. Like, as they looked into the future, they thought, well, because technology is progressing so quickly, we're not going to have anything to work on anymore. And so their fear was that we might at most have three hours a day of work and that we might be getting bored with all of our free time. Do you feel bored in all your free time? Do you have free time? Can you remember the last time that you had free time? Their predictions were way off. It's, we've not become less busy as we've advanced technologically. We have become more busy. Last decade or so, there's been this emergence of what has become known as hustle culture. Elon Musk is probably the poster child for hustle culture. He said this in a tweet last year. Nobody ever changed the world working 40 hours a week. And he's, if you want to work for him at Twitter or Tesla... He says, You have to be hardcore. You got to work long hours with high intensity. In fact, he took some of the offices and he converted them into bedrooms so people would never have to go home, including his own office. He oftentimes would sleep under his desk so that he could just work, go to sleep, and then pick up right where he left off. And he's sort of a symbol of this hustle culture. It's a mindset, it's a lifestyle of achievement. It's all about success, it's all about production, it's all about grinding, it's all about reaching your goals. And so your whole life, it revolves around doing, producing, becoming. You have to give 100%, 100% of the time. And really, we've been taught this since the earliest ages. If I think back on the messages that I got uh, from the culture around me, it was things like, do really well in school. Work hard, get good grades, that'll get you into a good college, and if you do well there, you're going to get hired, and then you can work hard and work your way up this ladder in which you can realize all of your hopes and dreams. And it was work, grind, work, grind, work, grind. There's a philosopher I came across recently, very interesting His uh, his name is Byung Chul Han. He's actually uh, South Korean, but then raised in Germany. And he has started to critique some of this hustle culture. And he relabeled it, and he calls it burnout culture. He says most cultures, they're controlled by what he refers to as negative power. Negative power is here's what you can't do, here's what you shouldn't do. But he says we live in a different cultural context, which he terms positive power. You can be whatever you want to be if you simply try hard enough and you don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't tell you who to be. Don't tell you who to become. It's all about what you want if you'll just work hard enough to go get it. He says this is a much more powerful um, uh, motivator because what it does is it ends up controlling people. And you don't have to control people from the outside by threatening them with a gun and saying, you better do this or you better not do this. All you have to do is say, you can realize all of your dreams if you just work hard enough and then you'll spend the rest of your life enslaved to this idea that you're never enough and you never have accomplished enough. He says it's a very powerful tool to control people. And the goal is, of course, to be authentic to yourself, to be who you want to be, to create your own standards of success. The result is narcissism. The result is always going to be, because as we take this inward focus, where in previous generations we've asked the question, how can I best serve my community or my country or my family? All of it has been turned inward upon ourselves, and now it's what do I want? What do I consider successful? It's all about me. And side note, you know where this term narcissist comes from? It's a 2,000-year-old word that comes from a story or a, a poem by this uh, Roman poet named Ovid. And he wrote The Legend of Narcissus. It's a story of a beautiful Greek hunter. One day he's out hunting, and as he walks by a pool of water, he sees his reflection, and he realizes how incredibly good-looking he is. It just reminds me of, like, Zoolander, you know, where you're just walking by, and he's like, Oh, <laughs> okay, I see you. And he is so infatuated with himself and how beautiful he is, he can't take himself away from looking at himself. And so he stays there until he literally dies. You could write that story today. I read an article in Forbes that says hundreds of people die taking selfies. They fall off cliffs, they get hit by trains. And even if you don't die, I feel like we're dying inside a little bit from our selfies. Like, have you ever been at dinner with, maybe if you're not a millennial or Gen Z, you ever been to dinner with one? Heaven forbid you go on vacation with one. Oh my gosh. You're literally going on vacation through the phone and you're just like, okay, where, is my wife in here? I'm going to throw her under the bus real quick on this one. 50% of the time is taking pictures on our vacation. The other 50% is looking at the pictures she took on vacation. It drives me out of my mind because we just, man, there's something, all right. When you look at a picture, this is not in my notes, this is a freebie, okay? If I were to take a picture right now of this crowd, and you were to look at it, where is the first place your eyes go? You! That's right! You don't care what, anyway, what makes a great picture? How do you look in it? Always! That's always how it is, it's how to, like, you guys can be a disaster, and I go, I like sin, that's really, wow, I gotta remember to wear that shirt more often. Anyway, okay, where was I? I got a little excited about that one. Uh, Oh, okay. So he says the result of this, and and you can see it in in what we value as a culture. It's all internally focused. It's all about me. And so who are the people that are our heroes? It's those who are uh, famous, wealthy, or celebrities. Those are the people that we look up to. And he blames part of this narcissism on what he terms the self-esteem movement. So we have this belief in our culture that the reason people do not succeed in life is because they have low self-esteem. And so we need to build them up so that they're more confident in themselves and they can pursue things that make them successful. This is counter to every other culture in human history that believed the opposite. The reason why people do not do what they're supposed to do is because they have too high a self-esteem. They're full of pride and they're entitled And we believe that if you just have more confidence, if you have more pride in yourself, then you're going to become who you're supposed to be. And so his conclusion is, we no longer see ourselves as persons, we see ourselves as personal projects. That's why you hear people say things like, well, I'm just really working on me right now. I'm just investing in me. I'm trying to love me a little bit more. Everything has taken this turn inward. And then our value who we are, becomes intrinsically linked to what we do. Here's what I have accomplished, and that's what makes me valuable. Even on my days off, I fall prey to this. I took time off during the summer, and I would sit at home with the kids, and I would sit on the couch hanging out with them, and I would just be like feeling guilty because what am I doing right now? I mean, yeah, sure, I'm sure I'm investing in them emotionally, whatever that means. But, like, I should be doing something right now. Maybe I should go to the garage. Should I clean something? Should I be working on something? Maybe I should go check in at the office and see what's going on there. Because I don't know who I am unless I'm, I'm producing something. He says, this is unstable. Eventually, this is going to end in burnout. Because we become anxious, exhausted, perpetually dissatisfied, even if we do meet our goals, there's going to be another one right behind it that we continue to have to pursue, and we'll never find peace. In recent years, I've seen a bit of a reaction to hustle culture. I've seen it in some of my friends, and I think I've seen it at culture at large in which I, I want to call it um, balance culture. It's a new way to look at life. So hustle culture, I heard someone say recently, I heard this word in a long time, um, they called somebody a yuppie. Does anyone under 40 know what a yuppie is? Do you guys know what a yuppie is? A yuppie is like, um, you remember um, American Psycho, Christian Bale, where he was like a high-achieving, it's kind of, that was a darker version, he was a high-achieving kind of, okay, you remember Robin Williams in Hook, the dad, where he was all about his cell phone, his beeper, he was all, you know, he was just going after it, he was climbing the corporate ladder, or uh, what is it, uh, Roman Gecko, or or no, Gordon Gecko, Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, Greed is Good, All about success, all about hard driving, all about making more money. And I've seen a bit of a reaction. Even amongst people that I know that are very successful, they've kind of gone for more of a a balanced life. Instead of trying to make as much money as possible, I see them making a shift. So when I drop my kids off at at practice, I will see there at least 50% of the dads at every practice. Almost 100% of them are at the games, And I'll see them at back-to-school night, and they're home for dinner, and they go on vacations at least once a year, and and they're really trying to balance out their life. And I think that's a good thing. But I've also noticed something else about this, this balanced life, is they've just traded one version of success for another version of success. So it used to be the picture of success is a Porsche in my driveway. Now the picture is the Instagram family that everybody envies, because we live in the right neighborhood, we go on all the best vacations, mom, even after 40, never has a wrinkle, and dad has a six-pack, and I mean, they've just got it all together, and the kid is excelling in every sport and activity and at school, and they're just perfect, this, this picture. But what I've come to realize is both of them are just as busy as one another. The pace hasn't stopped. It's just become different things that they put in their schedules, it's sort of like the old or the new boss is a lot like the old boss, constantly demanding that I prove, that I achieve, that I push, that I grind. It's just a little bit different way of keeping score. So, what's underneath all of this? Why do we drive so hard? Why are we so busy? Even if it's busy with things that are good things, why do we keep piling more and more and more onto our schedules and onto our shoulders? We don't have to live like this. We're not fighting for our survival what are we fighting for? In the New Yorker, they gave an answer to why all the people's predictions were wrong, that we would begin to work less as technology increased. And it says this, and there's a great line, it says, what they didn't understand is they didn't understand human nature. We can't not be busy. Tim Keller, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, says that busyness is one of the four natural characteristics of the human ego. So he says, the reason why we are so busy is because of our egos. He gives four different aspects or characteristics of the ego, and he outlines them in this uh, short book. He says this, he says, the first thing about our ego is our ego is empty. That there is this this hole within the human heart, within our ego. And we're constantly trying to fill it up. We're constantly trying to validate ourselves. We're constantly trying to prove our self-worth. We're trying to fill it up. And so it's kind of like a balloon and we're trying to puff it up. Here's why I'm valuable. Here's why I'm successful. Here's why I am somebody. And it continues to puff it up, but it's never really fulfilled because there's supposed to, in that place, be a relationship with God. But if you don't have God in your life, you're going to have to fill it with something else. Then he says that our ego... It's painful. So the thing about any other body part that you have. You probably never notice it unless something goes wrong. How many times have you thought about your big toe in the last 24 hours? Probably zero unless you stubbed it. If you stubbed it, you thought about it all the time. Because we are only paying attention to things that are painful or things that are broken. He says, "Why are we constantly worried about our ego? Why are we always looking for somebody who has offended us or not respected us or not given us- Why is our ego constantly out there and, and, and we're having to pay attention to it? Well, it's because something has gone wrong. It's painful. And of course, our ego is busy. It's busy trying to fill ourselves up with things that make us feel worthy and build our identity on. And then finally, he says our ego is fragile, just like that balloon that it's inflated, at any moment, it could be deflated. We could feel moments of pride because of our accomplishments, and then turn around in the next moment, we feel moments of insecurity and defeat because it's quickly defeated or deflated. Recently, I heard some uh, an interview, and in the interview, they talked about Madonna. Now, that was interesting because I don't know if you have you seen a picture of Madonna lately. I'm not trying to pick on Madonna. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a point here. She looks different. She looks. Quite different. And that's what they were talking about as well. Like she looks really different, and, and and they were talking about what what got her to this place because she is one of the most successful people of our time, and yet there is something that continues to push her forward and has continued to push and not only in her career but also in the way that she looks. And and what got her there? If you rewind back to an old interview that she did in Vanity Fair, I think it was 1991. She actually answered what continues to push her even to this day. She says this. She says my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, and it's pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. So this person who has accomplished more than any of us in this room can ever dream of, she says, it's never enough. I I succeed, I become even more well-known, more famous, make more money, and you know what happens? It doesn't satisfy It's like the ego is this black hole, and it doesn't matter how much you put in. It just continues to consume, and it's never enough, and it may drive you to change your entire appearance because you have to prove yourself. You have to prove that you're valuable, that you are enough. Well, Paul, the apostle Paul, comes along, and he goes, you know, you don't have to live like this. You can live differently. There's a whole other way to live. And in his letter to the Corinthians, it's a church in Corinth, where they're in the middle of a dispute and all of them are powering up and trying to prove that they are somebody. And the way they're doing it is they're saying, well, I should be a leader in the church because I follow Paul. And the other one says, well, I follow Paul. And the other one says, no, I follow Peter. And all of these are great leaders and great teachers in the church. And so they're trying to power up and say, you know, here's the crew that I'm a part of. And Paul wants to put an end to it. And here's what he says. He says in Corinthians 4, 3, he says this. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. (laughs) I love what he says here. He goes, look, I don't care what you think of me. And he sort of paints this picture. He goes, every day we walk out into the world, and it's this giant court that we're walking into. It's a courtroom. It's the court of public opinion. And everyone whom you encounter, they're judging you. They're saying this is the kind of person you are, and they're judging you based on your character, and your motives, and your looks, and your work ethic, your attitude, your schedule, hobby. They're, they're judging you based on who you, who you are, who you know, what you've done. And you know what? They're all making a judgment about you. We all do it. Right? We see somebody, and we make assumptions about them. And there's a verdict in our mind. Here's who that kind of person is. Whether we know them well or not here's who they are. Well, Paul says, I don't care. When I walk out in the world and people are making judgments about me, you know what? It doesn't bother me at all. Which in our culture, we would all say, that's right, Paul. You shouldn't care what anybody says. It's so ingrained in our DNA. So if my kid came home from school and said, you know, I had a rough day today because such and such was picking on me about this thing and I just felt really insecure about it and it really bothered me, what would my reaction as a parent be? What would I say to them? I would say to them, show me a picture of this child. So this kid with those teeth made fun of you? All right. Here's what we're gonna do. <laughs> we're gonna go in tomorrow, and you're gonna go after this kid. All right. His teeth. Call him summer teeth. Summer teeth. Some are yellow. Some are brown. Some are missing. Some just call him summer teeth. That'll get a big laugh. We'll go after. No. Amy said I couldn't do that. I said her oh, response is naturally, you know what? You don't even worry about what they think, because it only matters what you think. How do you feel about yourself? And Paul says, no. Not even that's true. He continues on and he says this. He says, indeed, I do not even judge myself. So he goes, I don't care what you think about me and I don't even care about what I think about me, which is totally crazy when we hear this in today's culture. You don't even care what you feel about yourself? I thought that was the point of life was for you to feel good about yourself. He goes, no, I don't even, I don't, I don't even care how I feel because some days I feel great about myself. I'm on top of the world. I'm full of pride. I'm feeling good. And then there's other days where I feel like a miserable failure. And it's just this roller coaster ride that I want to get off. I don't want to be on that anymore. He continues and he says this. and This is why he doesn't even trust himself. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Years ago, we had a speaker named David Wood. If you haven't heard of him, you should look him up. He became a Christian, but it was a pretty wild journey He became a Christ follower in prison because he was there for the attempted murder of his father. And the reason why he tried to kill his father was because he's a psychopath and he wanted to prove that he could do it and it didn't bother him. That he had gone beyond any kind of moral and ethics. And so if you had sat down with him and said, do you feel guilty for trying to murder your father? He would say, now my conscience is clear because I don't have one. I don't feel bad about anything I've ever done. But that doesn't make him innocent, because how we feel about ourselves in any given moment does not make it a reality. We can feel good, we can feel bad, we can feel indifferent, but there's a reality that exists beyond our feelings, and that's what Paul is pointing at. And the word he uses here for innocent can also be translated as vindicated, acquitted, or justified. And that's the thing all of us are looking for. All of us are looking for someone to say you're justified, Meaning, you're worthy. You're not guilty. You're loved. You're not rejected. You're accepted. That's what you're looking for. That's what Madonna is looking for. That's what every human who has ever lived is looking for, is someone to declare them innocent. Someone to say, you're okay. You're good. You're loved. And then he finishes with this. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. There's really only one opinion that I care about in this world, and it's not yours, and it's not mine, it's his. This is the only person whom I'm living for. This is the only person that I care to to impress, and guess what? His opinion of me is not based on anything I can do or I don't do. In fact, the verdict is out. He's already declared who I am. He's already said it. Before I've done anything, before I haven't done anything, the moment that I come into a relationship with him, the verdict is out, court is adjourned, it's over. And he explains it in Romans 8.1. He says, this is the verdict when you come to Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's the verdict. The verdict is, no matter what you have done or have not done, how you feel about yourself, when you come into a relationship with Christ, you no longer have to enter into the courtroom of opinion because he has now traded places with you. And it's now based on what he has done, not what you've done. And so so now you're free. You're free from caring what other people think. You're free from caring what even you think because it's only about what he says. And what he says is, you're loved, you're accepted, and you're forgiven when you're in a relationship with me. This brings an incredible amount of freedom if we can actually believe it. I think a lot of us would theologically say we believe it. We check yes" on the quiz, but, but to actually live this out, for this to become a reality in our life, can you imagine how much freedom that would, you would experience just on a day-to-day basis? When you go out and you just go, "I don't care." <laughs> like not that I care like I'm apathetic or I'm different, I'm just like, "I'm good." I'm okay. I'm free from all of that stuff. And I can actually now pursue things that bring me joy instead of things that I think are going to bring me acclaim or success or is going to change people's opinions, going to make me feel good about myself. I'm free from all of that. I can simply do whatever I'm called to do. Can you imagine the type of freedom? I think this type of freedom is, uh, is what Keller calls gospel humility. So he says the answer is not, uh, you know, high or low self-esteem. It's not about self-love or self-hate. It's about, and this is a key word, forgetfulness. Says that's what that's what we're we're aiming for is forgetfulness. He says this in his uh, book. He says this. I think we have it on here. There we go. The essence of the gospel of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. This is crucial. It is thinking of myself less. Not high self-esteem, not low self-esteem. It's not hating myself. It's not learning to love myself. It's just simply forgetting about myself. He says that's what it looks like to really understand the gospel and be humbled by it. Is you just begin to realize it's not about me. It's never been about me. It's about him and it's about other people, but it's not about me. If we started to instead of look inward and be concerned with our rights and and what people think of us, and we started to look externally at God and other people, can you imagine how much we would be how much less we would be offended throughout the day? Like look, we have taken offense to like another level these days. It's a virtue within our culture, is being offended. But being offended is really about me feeling like I deserve something. I'm entitled to something that I'm not getting. You should be giving me respect because of who I am. You should be honoring my rights. You should be, it's all about what I deserve. But if we just stop thinking about ourselves, you know, we would probably stop being offended. Or we no longer struggle with pride and insecurity. Oftentimes, our pride and our insecurity comes from how we're doing in comparison to other people. So I feel really good about myself when I look at somebody who's a little bit chubbier than I am and drives a worse car, which is hard to do. Uh, And then when I see somebody who drives a nicer car and has a six-pack, I go, "Dude, I quit. This is lame. I'm done. I don't want to play this game anymore. I feel bad, okay? But if we just were able to just stop thinking about ourselves and we stop comparing ourselves to others— we would be able to get off this roller coaster ride of pride and insecurity. I think it would also help our interpersonal relationships. Oftentimes, the reason why we are in conflict is because we're so focused on what we want and we ignore what they want that it causes conflict. Because when you have two people who are trying to fight for what they want, that's going to end in conflict. But if you have two people who are unconcerned with what they want and what the other wants, it not only stops conflict, it actually brings flourishing. And so, all this I think theoretically is a great idea. Yes. Even if you're not a Christian, you probably go, I should think about myself a lot less. That sounds like a winning strategy. And yeah, I should probably focus on others and maybe even focus on God, but how do you do this? I mean, this seems impossible. This is like countercultural, this is counterintuitive. I'm not even sure how to begin the process of not thinking about me because it's so natural. Well, throughout the summer, as I was trying to Wrestle with this anxiety and this stress. I went and revisited some books that I have read in the past, one of which was by a speaker that we have here often, J.P. Moreland, and he wrote a book called Finding Quiet. And in it, he talked about different strategies for not just dealing with stress and anxiety, but really about how to change the way that you think and what you think about. And he talks about this four step process, one that I'd actually been familiar with from a guy named uh, Jeffrey Schwartz from UCLA. And he originally developed it for OCD patients, but he says it's really applicable to anybody. Is there anyone who wants to change what and how they think this is how you do it? And he lays out these four steps. And for me, they've been important. And so I thought, I'll give you these four steps and maybe they will be helpful to you because I think they apply to today. So here's the four steps, he says. He says, the first step is this, is you need to relabel. You need to acknowledge the feelings that you're having, So oftentimes we go throughout our day and we feel all different types of emotions, but we never stop and actually acknowledge, this is the emotion that I'm feeling right now. We just feel it and then move on to the next thing. So a feeling that I felt recently is anxiety, anxious. So I'll just be driving along and maybe I'm listening to a podcast or I'm just thinking about some things and I'll just stop and go, now Cody, what emotions are you feeling right now? And it's either anxiety or anger. Those are my two best, anxiety or anger because I can tell, like I can feel it because I'm white knuckling it and I'm all tense and tight and uh, I'm gritting my teeth like this. And okay, Cody, you're feeling anxious right now. Let's just stop and acknowledge the way that you're feeling. I did this to Amy, by the way, this morning, did not go over well because um, she was like yelling at everybody. And I'm like, hey, um, Amy, let's just stop right now and really just, what emotions are you feeling? And she was just like, okay, you want to go there? I was like, you know what, I'll leave that for later. Let's just leave that there. That's okay. That's okay. And one of my kids yelled, anger. I can tell it's anger. She's feeling angry right now. (laughs) That's correct. Okay. So once we've acknowledged, man, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling afraid. I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. I'm sad. I'm bitter. We just simply label what we're feeling. The next step is this. Is he says that we need to begin to reframe. Start to investigate your feelings. Don't just accept them ask, okay, why am I feeling this way and, and should I feel this way? So I'm feeling anxious right now. Why am I feeling anxious? Am I heading towards, you know, an appointment that should make me anxious and that's why I'm feeling this way or am I just anxious generally because this is the state that I'm in or, or am I angry right now because someone did something that I didn't appreciate and so it, it kind of got me fired? Why? And should I even be angry? I'm angry right now but I'm really not justified in my anger. I really shouldn't be angry, but I am. And so we have to reframe our our feelings. We have to really investigate it. And then third, we have to refocus. And this is one of the more important parts, I think, uh, applicable today. Is you've got to refocus your attention. Especially refocus it off of yourself and onto someone else. Because when we feel these feelings and we acknowledge, here's the feelings that I'm having What we need to do is stop looking inward and start looking outward and upward. Okay, I'm feeling these feelings. Here's why I'm feeling these feelings. Because I'm feeling afraid of this appointment or I'm insecure because of this issue or I'm, and now I need to just turn my focus to somebody else. Maybe it's to your spouse. Go, hey, let me take out the trash for you. That was why she was angry, by the way, earlier. Um, Let me take out the trash. Let's grab a cup of coffee. Let's grab lunch. What's going on in your life? Or even better, refocus your attention upward. That's what spiritual disciplines are about. It's a way for you to take your attention off of yourself and onto God. That's what prayer is about. That's what worship is about. That's what reading scripture is about. It's all about stopping and looking at yourself and looking at the one who actually matters. I listened to a guy recently. His name's Andrew Huberman. He's a Stanford neuroscientist and a popular podcaster. And he was talking about how do we change? How do we change ourselves? And it was really interesting because this is obviously a man that is all in in the, the science world and neurology and the mind and the brain and how it all works. And he goes, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I've never told anyone this before, but at the end of the day, when I can't figure something out, I can't figure out how to change my thoughts, or I can't find a solution to something. You know what I've started to do? And he could tell he was very embarrassed about this. He said, I started to pray. And the guy goes, really? Well, Tell me more about that. He says, well, I have a colleague. It was actually his boss at Stanford, who was a Christian. And he said, you know, why don't you try praying? I found it to be really, really powerful. And so I did. And this guy's not a believer. He's not a Christian. I think he's probably fairly agnostic when it comes to God, but he just goes, and it worked. I wrote down a couple of the things that he said. He says, it allows you to get outside of yourself and let go of control, to acknowledge there's something bigger than me, and I just have to give over to that. If we don't believe in something bigger than ourselves, we're going to self-destruct. Even he could acknowledge, you know, the thing that really changes me is when I stop thinking about me, and I start thinking about, and he calls it a higher power, but we know what he's talking about. He goes, I got to take the attention off of me and onto the creator. And that's what happens when we begin to pray, and we begin to worship, and we begin to read scripture, is it takes the focus off of ourselves and onto him. And not only does it refocus our attention onto God, but it invites him into the process to begin to change us. And so it it takes us from looking at ourselves, looking at him, and then inviting him to look at us and change us. I think this is pretty much what the Christian life boils down to. If you want to live differently, everybody else lives inwardly focused, but the Christian lives outwardly focused. He looks out and he looks up while everybody else is looking in. That's what it means to live differently. And then finally, as you walk through those steps and you feel like, okay, the, the situation is over and you're beginning to change your thoughts, the last step is very simple. It's just, just revalue. Evaluate how you did. Okay, so as I think back about the scenario and this, this season, what are some things that I learned? What are some things that I did well? What are some things that I can work on so that next time I encounter this, because there will be a next time, how can I be a little bit better at this? So last week, <clears throat> came back from um, a little bit of time off. You would think I would be rested and um, I would be in a good mood. I wasn't for some reason. I was not in a good mood. And somebody did something that just really set me off. And it was such a minor thing. It's almost embarrassing. I won't even tell you what it is. But I just got all fired up. I was calling Amy, and I'm like, "Could you believe this? This is ridiculous!" I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm just angry. And then I remembered, "Hey, Cody, you know those four steps that you've been working all summer? You should try those right now." And I'm like, "All right, Cody, let's try it." And so I said, "Okay, I'm really angry right now, Cody." Step one, relabel. What are you feeling right now? Rage. That's what I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling rage. I feel like that people are stupid. I'm surrounded by idiots, and I want to verbally abuse someone. That's what I feel currently. Okay. Um, step two, let's reframe. Why do you feel that way, and should you feel that way? Well, I feel that way because someone was supposed to do something, and they didn't do it, and that makes me really angry because they're not living up to their responsibilities. Okay, and and why are you concerned that they don't live up to the result? Well, because it's important to me, and the thing that didn't get done is something that I wanted to get done, and so I'm angry because I feel disrespected. Ah, so it's about you again. You're not upset because they didn't get this simple thing done that probably no one else even noticed. What you're upset about is that you feel disrespected right now, that you're more important than that, and people should listen to you and do what you tell them to do. So it's about you. It's about your entitlement. It's about your pride. Okay, Uh, so okay, let's refocus. So right now, it's about you. How can we make it about, let's make it about this person. Maybe they've had a busy week. Maybe they didn't even understand. Maybe there's something going on in their life. You know what you could try doing, Cody? You could try praying for them right now. And I was like, <laughs> okay, Lord, Lord, let your will be done in their life right now. That's what I pray. That's the closest I could get to prayer in that moment, okay? I'm like, okay. And maybe you could go and you could, you could just check in and see how they're doing. Not even address the issue right now. Just, hey, are you good? Are you cool? Everything good in your life? Because right now it's about and You need to make it about others and about God. And then last step is revalue. And what I realized is, when I was able to just walk those steps, not only did it change my attitude and my focus, but it also changed the outcomes during that event. I wanted to go and and rip somebody's head off, but I didn't. Because I, I changed my focus and my attitude and the outcomes. Instead of a thing that could end up crushing a relationship, it ends up being something that actually strengthens the relationship. See, as Christians... We are called to live differently. And we don't just live differently because we're called to live differently, but because we want to live differently, because we want different outcomes. We see how the rest of the world is living and how that ends up for them, and we go, I think I want something different than that. And so if we want to live differently, we have to live selflessly. We have to stop looking inward and start looking outward and upward. I was reading a book recently by G.K. Chesterton about St. Francis of Assisi, a hero of the faith and church history. And he had this quote, and I thought I would end with this. He says this. He says, Above all, the grace and the gifts that Christ gives to his beloved is that of overcoming self. He says one of the best things about following Jesus is, yeah, he forgives us of our sins, and we have eternal life, and we have a relationship with him. But one of the greatest things about following Jesus is we no longer have to constantly be thinking about ourselves because that's already been taken care of. We get to now find the freedom in thinking about him and others. Let's pray. Lord, it is so hard for us to look outside of ourselves. Uh, and especially within this cultural context in which everything is inward. It's about looking inward for answers. It's about looking inward for purpose and for meaning. Everything is internally focused. And yet that is the complete opposite of what you have called us to do. You've called us to live differently. And in that, that living differently, we can find incredible amounts of freedom as we stop living for ourselves and start living to serve you and to serve others. And so, Lord, it is a simple message and it is something that is so hard for us to do. And so I just pray that you would just give us reminders. Even as we exit out of this building, it will be only minutes until we have the opportunity to put this into practice. And so Lord, walk with us. Help us to become people who think more about you and others than ourselves. In your name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.